Um, Genesis is at the beginning of the Bible. It's in the, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, it's really old, but it's got a lot of familiar stories. Maybe you know of them. Um, but when you hear that we're going to talk about Genesis, um, maybe you wonder, like, why? Like, why would we spend so much time looking at a book from the Old Testament that was written so long ago? Uh, aren't we Christians? Like, shouldn't we focus on Christ? Shouldn't we just pay attention to Jesus in the New Testament? Uh, I actually looked back in the 40-something sermons that we've had at Story Church this last year. I've actually only looked at the Old Testament twice. So much of our time has been focused on looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus and of the early church in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so you might wonder, like, why are we going to spend so much time looking at the Old Testament? It's old, isn't it? It's not about Jesus, right? Well, it's a good question. And uh, we're going to look at this passage in Matthew 5, where Jesus actually tells us how we should then approach the Old Testament. He's going to teach us the attitude that we should have when we open up the Old Testament. He's going to show us why we should look at the Old Testament. And in fact, when we look at this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is showing us that the Old Testament, it, it does three things. And so if you want to take notes or follow along in your head, we're, this is where we're going. It, the Old Testament, uh, it endures, it has a purpose, and it can lead us to life. Jesus is going to show us that the Old Testament endures it lasts, uh, it's got a purpose to it, and it can lead us to life. And so that's why we're going to study Genesis. But let's first look at Matthew 5 and see what Jesus has to say, starting at verse 17 and just going through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be people who listen to your word, and so we pray that we would listen to your Son, the very word of God. Teach us how we are to learn and study the Old Testament. We pray for your Spirit to open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, we see Jesus shows us that the Old Testament endures. At this time uh, in Jesus' life, there were people who had been following Jesus for a while and observing his teachings and his ministry, and they were beginning to wonder, is Jesus getting rid of the Old Testament? And here's why they might have been wondering that. You see, Jesus, on the Sabbath, he went out and healed people, which was a violation of the Ten Commandments. And then when he would have dinners with people, he wouldn't wash up the same way that the scribes and Pharisees would wash up. And he actually 
ate meals with people that no one else wanted to eat meals with because the law had told them not to. You see, Jesus again and again sort of pressed the line and sort of bended what they all thought were the rules. And so they wondered, is he getting rid of those rules? There are other times where Jesus will say, maybe you've read this, he'll say, you have heard it said to not do that, but I tell you, don't do this. Is Jesus trying to replace the old with something new? That's what people were worried about. In, in his day and age, that was unthinkable. You could not reject the Old Testament. But today, like that's a lot more desired. Let's get rid of that old book. Maybe you haven't heard that or thought that, but I'm sure you know people that have said things like this. I couldn't believe in a God who teaches homosexuality as a sin. Well, open up the book of Leviticus. That's what it teaches. Or you might have heard, man, if only, if only it was just about Jesus and not anything else, because Jesus I really like. Look, he talks about loving your neighbor and your enemies and, and doing good to other people. But the rest of it, I just feel like it's so full of anger and vengeance and wrath. Can we just get rid of that? Like if you open up the book of Judges or Joshua, you see God commanding his people to go and attack other nations, seemingly innocent nations. Other people look at the Bible and say, this thing is it's, it's full of such wickedness. Like rape, polygamy, slavery. Let's just get rid of it. It's just, people don't want that. Maybe you thought that. And then when we get even into the New Testament, we read the authors of the New Testament compare the new from the old, right? They say things like the old, well, that was the law. And here are all the ways in which that was bad. But now grace has come. So you're no longer a slave under the law. You're free under grace. Sometimes we wish, don't we, that we didn't have all that was there in the Old Testament. If we've got the new, why do we have to go back to the old? Why do we even have it anymore? Wouldn't we be better off without it? That's what people were wondering. Is that what Jesus is here to say? But he says in verse 17, if you look, he shows us where he stands. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He has not come to get rid of it. In fact, he says it will endure. Look at verse 18. Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. What Jesus is referring to when he says not an iota, in the Hebrew alphabet, there's this little character called a yod. And it's like an apostrophe. It's the smallest character in the Hebrew language. And he says, every one of those yods, even so small as a yod, it stands the test of time. It will endure. And the dot, it's, it's not a letter, it's the little end of the letter that makes the letter look the way that it does. If you, if you look at your bulletin, if you have it, look at the top when it says order of worship. Look at the P. You see at the bottom of the P, there's a little line 
underneath the P line, we call that a seraph. That's what Jesus is saying here. Not even the little dots on the letters will pass away. Jesus is saying that the word of God, the Old Testament, it will endure. It is not going away. He's saying that it has power. It has authority. Every part of the Old Testament has this authority, even the smallest bit of the letter. But what does it mean for the Bible to have authority? What does it mean to have power like that? It, it means that whatever the Bible says about God and about humanity is true. It's, it's whatever the Bible says about who God is and what he has done and what that means for us and who we are and what we've done and what that means for our relationship with him. Whatever the Bible says about that is true. So when the Bible says that God made man men and women in his image to reflect his glory, it means that that is the purpose that we have in life. The purpose that we have in life is not to seek our own pleasure, but to pursue the glory of God in everything that we do. When the Bible says that sin has entered into the world and has corrupted every living thing in the creation itself, it means that deep within us there is something broken and wrong and not the way that it is supposed to be, that we are not okay. And when the Bible says that the, the solution to this deep problem is that sin would be eradicated, it means that like, education is not going to fix all of the problems. Social justice is not going to fix all of the problems. The real solution is a savior who will eradicate sin. When we say that everything in the Bible is authoritative, we mean to say that what it says about God and humanity is true. Do you believe that? Or have we become the ultimate judge of what's true and what's not about God and ourselves? When we run up against something that we read in the Bible about God or ourselves, do we accept it or we, do we reject it? Do we say, that doesn't sound right? No, come on, that's, okay, that might have been how they thought about it then. That's not how we think about it now. Do we say, like, that's just not socially acceptable today? That's not practical for my life. God, that can't be true. When we run up against something from God's word that disagrees with the way that we're living or thinking, do we wrestle with it and come to an understanding with it? Or do we ignore it? Jesus says that the word of God endures. It is authoritative. It has power to tell us who he is, who we are, and what our relationship with him looks like. That's why we're going to study Genesis. Because in Genesis, we learn why God created this world. We learn what happened to us as humanity. And we learn about God's great mission to send a redeemer who will crush the snake. And set us free. 
Genesis is the beginning of the story, the true story of our lives. That's why we're going to study Genesis. Jesus doesn't just show us that the Old Testament endures. He also shows us that it has a purpose. Look at verse 17. Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. What does it mean that when Jesus says he has come to fulfill the Old Testament? Maybe when you hear that word fulfillment, uh, you, you, you might think of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And that, that's common, and especially like around Christmas time. We love to see like, well, look, in Micah, it says that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is coming to Bethlehem. And then we flip over to Matthew and it says, in the city of Bethlehem, Jesus was born. All right, Jesus came to fulfill the prophets. Or, or we read in Zechariah that the Messiah is going to ride triumphantly but humbly on a donkey. And then we flip over and we see Jesus comes into Jerusalem, not on a horse, not in a chariot, but riding what? On a donkey. And you could probably find hundreds of these sentences from the Old Testament that say, look, Jesus fulfills this. And that's one way to think about Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, but I don't think that that's actually what Jesus is saying in this passage. To fulfill in this passage means to, to bring to pass the intended purpose of something, to, to bring to its finality or its completion the thing that was talked about before. And so for Jesus to say that he is here to fulfill the Old Testament, he is saying that there is a purpose in the Old Testament. There is a purpose to introduce me, to, to anticipate me, to prepare the way for me. That is the purpose of the Old Testament. Now, how does he do that? Like how, how does that all work together? I want to introduce this idea that even actually the New Testament uses to talk about this. And it's this idea of a shadow and the real thing that is casting that shadow. Like when you, when you, when you see a shadow, you know that there's something else. Like right now, there's this light coming in, and I, I can see that there is. And so Jesus is saying, when you look at the Old Testament, you are seeing shadows of the real thing. Follow the shadow, and then you'll find the real thing that is making it. That's how the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with these shadows that point us to the real thing, who is Jesus. So when we read the Old Testament, we are to be mindful of these things. That when we run across them, that we might not see that they're shadows, but we're supposed to think, how does this point us to Jesus? How does this anticipate Jesus? How does this prepare me to see Jesus? Take, for instance, sacrifices. So sacrifices all over the Old Testament, right? People would bring an animal to the temple, and they'd go to the altar, and they'd slaughter the animal, and they would take the blood of that animal and say, this blood covers me. It cleanses me from my sin. 
And they would do that all the time. I mean, priests worked in the temple offering sacrifices again and again and again. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, one of the very first things that we hear about him is John the Baptist crying out and saying, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the real sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were merely shadows pointing us to. Or take the idea of the temple itself. Look, the Israelites, they first built this tent called a tabernacle. And then they, when they got into Israel, they built this temple. And it was in the temple that God's very presence would come down and meet with his people. That is where the divine and the natural intersected is where people drew near to find life. But when Jesus comes, one of the authors of the New Testament says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt doesn't just mean like came and hang out. The, the Greek word there is to tabernacle. Jesus tabernacles with us. He temples with us. So the temple is just a shadow of the real thing. And then finally, let me briefly say Moses. Think of Moses and leading the, the people of God out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness. We have a whole book in the Bible called The Exodus, all about that, about how God redeems his people, liberates them from slavery, and promises to bring them to a promised land where they will enjoy his presence forever. In the New Testament, there's this time where Jesus goes up on a mountain. And the disciples see this cloud fall down and descend on the mountain. And they see three figures, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And they can hear what they're talking about. And it says that they were talking about Jesus' departure that he was about to go through. But that word departure doesn't mean just to leave. That word departure in the Greek is the exodus. Moses was talking to Jesus about his exodus, the greater exodus, the one where God would completely and finally redeem his people, paying the ultimate sacrifice, liberating us from slavery to sin, promising us that we would live with him in the promised land of heaven forever. Even the whole book of Exodus is but a shadow of the real thing that we have in Jesus. Jesus is saying there is a purpose to the Old Testament is that it is to point you to me. It anticipates me. It prepares the way for me. That is why we're going to study Genesis is because actually by studying Genesis, we are going to understand Jesus so much more. We are going to see all of the ways in which the shadows of Genesis point us to the real thing in Jesus. Finally, Jesus not only shows us that the Old Testament endures, not only does it have a purpose, but it also can lead us to life. Look at the end of our passage, verse 20. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he talks about entering the kingdom of heaven, that was Jesus' way of talking about experiencing this eternal and abundant life with the Father. To enter into the kingdom of heaven is to live in such a way where there is joy, where there is peace and justice. And it's only available in the kingdom of God. But you can begin to experience that now, and it goes on forever. He is inviting us to come into the greatest story that never has an ending. That is the life that we all crave deep within us, to come into the kingdom of heaven. This is the life that we want for ourselves and for those that we love. But Jesus says that the only way to go into that life, the only way to experience that life now, is by having a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. I'm going to explain a few things about what he just said. First, when Jesus talks about righteousness, when he uses that word, he's talking about living in such a way that our behaviors, our actions, our thoughts, that it produces this kind of moral quality within us that is accepted, that is received and approved of and good. I like to say that when we read the word righteous, we should think about this idea of wanting to be accepted. Like if you ever sit down for a job interview, you want to give your best self to them. You want to show how professional you are, how qualified you are, how worthy you are of that job. You want to be your best so that they look at you and say, I want that guy. I want that person. They're worthy. That's what it means to be righteous, to put our best foot forward, to have this kind of moral quality within us that says, you are approved. And Jesus says that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to experience eternal, abundant life, You have to be righteous. You have to be approved. You have to be accepted. And you have to be so righteous, far beyond the Pharisee. Now, we give Pharisees a bad rap, and rightfully so at times. But in their day, look, the Pharisees, they were like the prime example and model of righteous living. They knew the scriptures in and out. They disciplined their lives to obey the rules. They were models of righteousness. And for Jesus to say, you have to be better than them, well, that's unthinkable. There's no way for that to happen. You see, when the Pharisees looked at the Old Testament When they said, I want this book to teach me to be righteous, they did it in two ways. Maybe you've done it this way too. First, they'll think of the Old Testament as this list of rules saying, do this, don't do that, go there, be like that. And if you do this and if you don't do that, well, then you're quickly becoming righteous. Or they'll they'll look at it this way, they'll look at the stories these great examples of of faith and valor and say, I need to be like him. 
I need to be like her. Look at her tremendous faith. Maybe that's how you have read the Bible in the past too. You look at the Ten Commandments and say, this is what God wants me to do. And if I do these well enough, well, then I'm going to be approved. Or they'll look at King David and say, man, if only I had faith like King David to face my own giants. That's how we tend to look at the Old Testament, just like the Pharisees did. Maybe you've tried to read the Old Testament before like that. You might have gotten maybe to like Exodus 27, and then you gave up because it's crushing. Like it is so hard to wade through those, not, not because the names are hard to pronounce, although that's true, but because you get to the law and you realize if this is how I'm supposed to live, if this is how I'm supposed to be accepted, if this is the way that God will approve me, there's no way to do it. You will be crushed. Maybe you've read the Old Testament like that, looking for it to bring you life, but it only ended in you being crushed. Jesus has another word to say to the Pharisees and to us too. In John 5, he turns to the Pharisees and says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet, and yet it is those scriptures that point to me. Jesus is saying you cannot go to the Old Testament looking to make yourself worthy. You have to go to the Old Testament the way that it was designed to be read, pointing to me. Jesus is inviting us not to go here and ask, what does this have to do to me? How does this teach me how to live? He's inviting us to go to the Old Testament and ask, how does this point us to Jesus? How does this, how does this point me to the grace of God in Jesus? That's the question we have to ask. That's the only way that we can go to it and it can lead us to life. In closing, let me just, let me say how this works. If we're to read the story of David and Goliath as what it primarily means about me, well, then the moral of the story is that we need to have faith like David, we need to stand up against our giants, and we need to trust God more and more and more. But that is going to the story and asking, what does this teach me? But if we go to that story and say, how does this point me to Jesus? Well, then we see that Jesus stood up to a giant far greater than Goliath. He stood up to sin and death itself. And whereas King David walked into the battle knowing that there would be a risk for his life, Jesus willingly went to the cross fully knowing that it would absolutely cost him his life. And whereas King David's victory spread to all of Israel, for those who are in Christ, Christ's victory is now ours. And so now, if our greatest enemy has been defeated, there is nothing in this world, no giant that we face, that has the power to destroy us. 
I'm not saying that you won't face difficulty or suffering or pain. But if the greatest enemy has already been defeated, then there is nothing of eternal significance for us to worry about. Now, if that is true, you can go into Monday and the stresses of work with confidence, not that you have enough faith to face down those giants, but knowing that God loves you and has defeated the worst thing imaginable and his love is always on you. That is what it means to look at the Old Testament and have it lead you to life, not because it tells you how to live, but because it points us to the one alone who is able to give us that life, Jesus. The problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't really have a relationship with the God of the Bible. They kept on wanting to prove themselves worthy to him. But you and I have an invitation to go to the scriptures and to see the one who the scriptures point to and enter into a relationship with him and find life in him. That is why we're going to study Genesis. It's because it tells us the true story of the world. That's why we're going to study Genesis. It's because in Genesis, we see foreshadows of our Savior. We're going to study Genesis because we trust that as we're in Genesis, it will lead us to new and real life in Jesus. And so I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll walk through it with us. Come along for the journey because it leads us to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.